Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. At some point along the way, realized that money was infinite, but that time was not, you know, that I could always go out and make more money, but I was never going to get back, you know, my time that I was trading for money. And so, you know, once I realized, you know, I, I'd obviously read all about, but once I realized that kind of this moment is all there is, then it really woke me up to the fact of like, oh, if I'm going to trade my life energy for money, I want to try to make as much as possible and buy my freedom. And I figured out pretty, once I left my parents' house and I started a whole new career at the age of 24, it was with a completely different mindset. And I figured out early on that like every hundred dollars that I was saving, I was buying four or five days of freedom in the future. And I started measuring money in units of time. And I was like, every time I was going to buy something, I was like, how much time did I spend to make this money? And how much time am I giving up by buying it? And so I became very fixated on um, you know, clearly financial freedom, which is what my book is about, but how, how could I, you know, what trade-off was I actually making? And I, you know, I, I really wanted like a new car. It's going to be $40,000. And I calculated that I was going to have to work almost six more years in the future in order to buy that car. So not only would it, you know, it was 2000 hours of my life, I was trading for that car, but I was sacrificing that and I would have to work another six years in the future just to afford it. So I started measuring my life that way. And um, I mean, that's really what the book's about, how to make more money in less time so you have more time to live a life you love. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Grant, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, man, it's a real honor. It's just uh, been a long time listener and excited to be on the show. Yeah, so uh, you are here because you have a new book coming out with Penguin, uh, which is about a subject that I've spent a lot of time studying and talking to people about, uh, which is around money and finance. But uh, before we get into the meat of all of that, uh, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life? Yeah, so my parents um, both grew up very poor. Um, like my father one one new pair of pants a year poor no stoplight in his town in southern indiana and my mom grew up on a small farm and they actually my dad and me are still the only people who've gone to college on his side of the family and they um picked up when i was six months old i was actually an accident um they picked up when i was six months old and wanted to give me uh, a different life a better life so they moved from southern indiana to the suburbs of washington dc my mom worked as a secretary and my dad actually cleaned the office where my mom was a secretary. Um, so that's that's where they started. Um, my dad then started in the mail room at like, you know, an, an association and ended up staying there for about 30 years, kind of working his way up. Um, and then my mom got in to kind of the event planning space and then magazine publishing and did some consulting. And, you know, she's been involved in publishing Um from a young age, uh, one of the earliest things my father told me was money is freedom. He used to say two things, money is freedom and life is a beach. And I didn't understand what either of them meant as a five-year-old kid. <laughs> and I actually had him on my podcast. He was the first episode. And the first question I asked him is, you know, what did you mean by that when you said money is freedom? Um, and I knew my parents didn't have a lot of money growing up. It was something that was always talked about. It was, you know, they fought about it occasionally. It was very present in our lives. It was very easy to see, um, you know, that I, uh, you know, was the sort of, you know, poorest kid on my soccer team, um, for many number of years. And yeah, I think that that in and of itself, um, clearly embedded in me, uh, a deep, deep need and desire to kind of want to be free um, and not have to be stressed about money. My parents now are in their 60s. They're both still working. Um, they're financially, you know, fine now. They probably could retire, um, but they keep working, you know, primarily because, you know, they kind of enjoy what they do and um, are a little worried about how much they have. You know, they have that anxiety of not, not, thinking they have enough and mm -hmm. all of that. In addition to growing up, you know, retirement, my parents, my parents, friends, every party, you know, it's all kind of 
the middle class talked about, at least in the DC suburbs. So it was something that was very present. There was a, a family friend of ours, Jim, who retired at 49. And I remember that was something my parents talked about literally for years. You know, it's like of all the stories of my childhood, the one I remember the most, one of them is like them talking about a family friend who retired early at the age of 49 because, you know, he inherited some money and saved some money. So money was always very, very present in my life, um, really from the beginning. Yeah. When you started thinking about, you know, career choices early on, uh, one, you know, what kinds of choices did you make? What kinds of advice did your parents give you about careers? And you know, the other thing I think that comes with that is, you know, you were taught this idea that money is freedom, yet you are around people who didn't have a lot of money. So you have sort of conflicting value systems. How did you resolve that? Yeah, those are good questions. Um, so it's interesting because I clearly always felt my parents making sacrifices for me. Um, you know, I learned later that my father uh, and parents actually didn't even start saving for retirement until after I went to college. So they, you know, were spending money on me and me growing up and just the lifestyle they lived. Um, so very clearly, I felt um, kind of them in the way they talked to me, uh, you know, just in my entire life, them kind of, you know, pushing me up the social ladder, if you will. Um, or, you know, for lack of a better word, just kind of embedding sort of potential in me and like, you know, you know, all of those things. And so I think that I really felt that, I mean, I, I viewed it as an opportunity. I didn't really think it, you know, felt, feel it was a burden. Um, but at the same time I was like, okay, cool. Like I needed to make something of myself because my parents came from nothing and they did all of this to give me an opportunity. You know, the, the idea growing up that my parents moved to give me a better opportunity. We'd go back um, and visit family. Um, and I remember my mom saying something like, you know, we got out so you didn't have to, you know, so you'd have more opportunities, you know, something that was very present. Um, I really wanted to be a writer uh, from the time I was like 14. Um, that was something that was somewhat supported, but I also, um, you know, had a lot of pressure to, to for, perform well in school. So, um, you know, I graduated second in my class, probably out of an equal mix of curiosity and fear. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, I was very curious, I loved learning, but I also was extremely afraid of repercussions if I didn't perform. Um, and then I went off to college, and I was a philosophy major. Um, Went off to college where I was counseled to become an economics major, took one econ class at the University of Chicago and was like, this is not for me. Fell in love with philosophy, um, you know, obviously loved writing and, you know, was, was, was by that time more counseled to just make sure you have a good job when you graduate. You know, that was kind of the prevailing narrative. And so that's what I did. I uh, had a job, you know, I got a job at like a call center analytics company. You know, when you call in, then they're like, this call may be recorded. Well, I worked for a company that listened to those calls and tracked like sentiment analysis. And the work was actually uh, relatively interesting. But what wasn't interesting was commuting two hours each way, sitting in a cube in the middle of a room, no light, my, you know, building, they didn't replace the, you know, air filter. So the air was always stale. My boss sucked. You know, it was the quintessential, like, oh my gosh, this is going to be terrible forever. And I remember calling up my dad, like three weeks after I started the job, I said, man, this is terrible. I'm so tired. I got to get up at 4.30 AM. And he's just like, you know, welcome to the real world. You'll get used to it. And, um, yeah, fast forward kind of two, two and a half years, I bounced around four different jobs. I got laid off twice. The first time I got laid off was from that analytics company because I wasn't making them enough money and we lost one of our clients. And so they let me go. And then the second time I got laid off uh, was I was working at a newspaper as a researcher and it was in the Great Recession and they weren't getting any ad, you know, their ad revenue declined. So I got laid off because I was the low guy on the totem pole. And so at 24, I found myself, you know, living back home with my parents and sleeping in the same bed that I'd slept in as a seven-year-old kid. And I had $2 and 26 cents left to my name. And my parents um, said I could stay there for three months, but they weren't going to give me a dime and that, you know, I needed to find a job. And 
uh, you know, every night that I went down to dinner and sat with them, you know, they didn't really say much, but I could just see the insane and incredible kind of disappointment and confusion and worry and all those emotions wrapped up in their faces. I've been there, done that. I think you and I can relate uh, to that because, uh, you know, we both, I think I've had similar experiences. Uh, one of the things I wonder, you know, you're a philosophy major at uh, what is effectively an elite institution. I know this because I've been to one myself. Uh, you know, I know that University of Chicago has a, a world-class reputation. I wonder what are the things that you learned about the definitions of success from the people that were your peers and how did your being a philosophy major shape that? Yeah, so I very much bought into kind of the traditional success narrative, um, you know, pretty early on of like, you know, more, more, more. So job promotion, you know, I want the job promotion. I want to be a VP. I want to make six figures. I want to be a millionaire. Like, you know, those are all things that I wanted. It wasn't until I actually had all of those things that I realized that success for me ended up not being about money at all. It was about peace. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was kind of chasing something externally when what, you know, I really was looking for was just some peace and calm, not just, but you know, I was looking for some peace and calm in my life. Um, and that was something in hindsight, you know, I wouldn't have known as a college kid. A lot of my philo you know, philosophical training was focused on, you know, it's like linguistic philosophy and psychoanalytic theory. And so I'm very, very interested in um, like how, you know, our unconscious is structured. And so I was very, I, I loved language. I was in love with kind of the power of language. You know, I wanted to be a writer, but you know, I wouldn't, you know, once it's great to kind of dream and then you face with that wall of reality and you're like, Oh crap, I got to get a job. And I very much just, once that carrot was placed in front of me, I bit it. You know what I mean? Like the first job I got out of college I was making like $42,000 and you would have thought I won the lottery, man. Cause I was like, wow, you know, and then quickly realized the trade-off that I was making for it. Um, and you know, at some point along the way realized that money was infinite, but that time was not, you know, that I could always go out and make more money, but I was never going to get back, you know, my time that I was trading for money. And so, you know, once I realized, you know, I, I'd obviously read all about, but once I realized that kind of this moment is all there is, then it really woke me up to the fact of like, oh, if I'm going to trade my life energy for money, I want to try to make as much as possible and buy my freedom. And I figured out pretty, once I left my parents' house and I started a whole new career at the age of 24, it was with a completely different mindset. And I figured out early on that like every hundred dollars that I was saving, I was buying four or five days of freedom in the future. And I started measuring money in units of time. And I was like, every time I was going to buy something, I was like, how much time did I spend to make this money? And how much time am I giving up by buying it? And so I became very fixated on um, you know, clearly financial freedom, which is what my book is about, but how, how could I, you know, what trade-off was I actually making? And I, you know, I, I really wanted like a new car. It's going to be $40,000. And I calculated that I was going to have to work almost six more years in the future in order to buy that car. So not only would it, you know, it was 2000 hours of my life, I was trading for that car, but I was sacrificing that and I would have to work another six years in the future just to afford it. So I started measuring my life that way. And um, I mean, that's really what the book's about, how to make more money in less time. So you have more time to live a life you love. Um, well, but hindsight's always twenty twenty, man. Looking uh, back, I see it a lot clearer. <laughs> yeah. I think it's so interesting you bring up you know the way that you chose to measure your life, which I want to talk about. But one of the things I, I want to ask you about just out of my own personal curiosity is, is um, the impact that this time period with your parents had on your relationship with them. Because you know, having read Unmistakable, I spent plenty of time living at my parents' house way more than anybody should. And I did it way later in life than you did. And it was humiliating for a very long time. Um, so I wonder one, you know, how did you deal with whatever internal baggage you had around that? And how did you navigate the dynamic with your parents? So thankfully it was only a three month period, um, you know, incredibly traumatic in that sense, but I kind of stayed away from them. I was spending most of my day, you know, applying to jobs. I, you know, when I was writing the book, I looked back and I sent out 
217 resumes and I didn't get a single email back before I realized that I needed to do something differently. Um, and you know, that's when I went into, you know, taught myself how to use Google AdWords. So that was when I got Google AdWords certified. Um, but you know, it luckily was only three months that I was really living with them. You know, I think I was actually, I think I went over the three month mark. I think I was like four or five days over, but by then they knew that I was, you know, applying to different types of jobs. I don't know if they would have actually kicked me out. Um, I think I was so fixated and so traumatized that I didn't really have to think that hard about how it made them feel. I was just like, I need to get out of here as quickly as possible. Um, now looking back, I mean, in the book, I write very openly and candidly, um, about that time. Um, you know, I, I think my parents now are more like, whoa, he actually escaped. Um, and you know, I, I made something of himself. And so, you know, I don't think that much about what my parents think about me now. I'm just very thankful that, you know, they're in their sixties and they're still alive and I get to spend time with them and I have more time than ever to spend with them. So the past couple of years, since I've been financially independent, I've spent significantly more time with them, uh, than I did, you know, in other areas of my life, but obviously now it's on, on, on my own terms. I'm not just crashing, crashing their pad. Yeah. So I want to talk about this idea of time, but more, more importantly, not just time, but this concept of measuring your life, because I, I, this is something I've been thinking a lot about of, of, you know, we have all these various metrics by which we can measure our lives today, right? Like by the followers we have on Twitter or fans we have on Facebook or whatever it is, or the, the size of our audience or the size of our bank account. But I mean, I, you know, to me, as I, as I think about this, uh, especially as, as, you know, my sister is about to get married and I've just spent you know time with my parents, uh, in India for a month, I realized that, wow, like if I didn't have this set up the way that I do, I wouldn't have that time. And that time to me is much more precious than money. Uh, because like you said, money is sort of infinite. Uh, but you know, I wonder, <clears throat> so how do you measure your life or the value of your life or the quality of it? Like, what are the metrics that determine your happiness? Yeah. So I, um, you know, interestingly, or maybe not interestingly, um, you know, my life kind of before financial independence and after financial independence is pretty radically different. Um, just my relationship, you know, I've always kind of felt, uh, you know, the ethereal nature of time. I felt that my whole life. I actually recently found like a journal that I had when I was like eight years old and I was writing about time and why does it move so fast? I can't believe I'm eight years old already. Um, you know, so I've, I've been thinking about this for obviously my entire life. And, you know, there's interesting, an interesting thing that has happened is, you know, once I became financially independent, I felt like I had all the time in the world. It was like, whoa, now my days, like I can do whatever I want. Um, now kind of two years in time feels more like a pond or a lake. It's, it, it's something that is, it's not, it's, it's clearly passing, but I, I feel very much at peace with it as opposed to trying to fill every moment of my day. And that's my big challenge, you know, I'm of the generation that, you know, I think I was 23 when I read uh, Four Hour Work Week. And, you know, I was, and that whole sort of quantified self movement and productivity journaling and all those things of let's schedule every minute of every day. Um, I did that. I scheduled every minute of my day for, you know, almost the entire time that I was working toward financial independence. Now I realize how much that actually held me back hmm. because. Um, life to me happens when you open to it and sometimes you don't have to chase anything. You just have to exist and you just have to sit in it. And so I didn't realize, um, it took me about eight months to, I call it my corporate detox. It took me a long time to kind of unravel, um, all the stress and the intensity of, you know, working 80 hours a week for seven years straight, um, but once I did, I started to realize, um, you know, and just, I had to give myself permission to do nothing. I started realizing how actually paradoxically trying to schedule every moment of my life was actually making me much less happy than simply opening to life. Um, because life to me now is very much about the unexpected, the surprise, something I didn't think was going to happen, something that, 
you know, just becomes. And so you have to kind of create time and space with which to have those interactions with life and existence. And, you know, it's tough. It's like, um, it's very hard with 10 vacation days a year to truly get enough time to allow yourself to open and grow. It's hard to do in 10 minutes a day of meditation, for example, like, you know, sometimes I'll just like go lay under a tree on a Sunday and it's just like, I'm not doing that for any particular reason. I'm simply doing it to be aware, to be alive. And, you know, my life has become infinitely more rich once I let go of the idea of being happy altogether, because happiness to me, um, you know, it's a momentary thing. It's a, it's a fleeting thing, but, you know, having peace in my life, feeling at ease, feeling like I'm one with the world to me, uh, is, is much, much more, um, uh, fulfilling, um, but that's, that's an evolution, man. That's, that's like, uh, you know, it's kind of unfolded in that way. So I don't go out and seek things that make me happy. Um, I wake up in the morning and think about life very much like a playground. Like what toy do I want to play with today? What do I want to create? Where do I want to go? Um, and so kind of just opening up to the world and not knowing what's going to happen to me is the most exciting thing. Mm, wow. Well, let's do this. Let's uh, shift gears and get into some of the practical aspects of this. I think there were, there were some things that really struck me here uh, that, you know, in terms of just the way you structure the book. And I wanted to start with the very first one, which is knowing your number. Uh, this is really you know interesting because it's really particularly relevant to, to what I've been experiencing. I had a, a really interesting conversation with Ryder Carroll a few uh, few weeks ago. It was our first episode of the year where he said, you know, how do you define rich? How much is enough? And if you don't know those things, then you know you have this very sort of empty, uh, meaningless goal of seven figures, right, with no real reason for it. And so often, I mean, and I think you also echoed the sentiment in your book. You said often it's less than you think. Yeah. Um, the most important question is what kind of life do you want to live? And then the second question is, okay, how much money do I need to live that? But starting with the life question and then following up with the money is more important than often the other way around. We think, okay, here's how much money I'm making. Now here's what kind of life I can live. And mm -hmm. one of the things, you know, how much is enough is, is like a coin. There's two sides to it. There's the number amount, but more importantly, there's the feeling. And like I mentioned, the world tells us to chase more and more, whether it's more followers or a new job, you know, a better job title or more money or whatever it may be. The world doesn't really teach us to stop and go inside and say, you know, this is good. I feel good. Today was a good day. And so, you know, in the book, I talk about, you know, what's the perfect day look like to you? Who are you with? What are you doing? write it out. Okay. How much money does it take to live that day? And when I did these things for myself, you know, like seven out of the 10 things I wrote down were free. And the other three things like walking my dog in the park on a Sunday, you know, having a conversation with my wife, um, you know, and then the other things were like relatively cheap, like getting coffee with a friend, um, you know, doing some traveling. And when you look at your life of like, how can I maximize those things that give me the most joy and most fulfillment and build my life around those? Maybe it's like being able to drop off your kid at school and pick them up, mm -hmm. you know, both free, <laughs> you know, it's like you can, you, you, if you use that to guide how you structure your life, you know, in a lot of cases, maybe you'll take the less stressful job that pays less money, but it allows you to be home at two so you can pick up your kid. Yeah. Or maybe you'll take, you know, a part-time job instead of a full-time job so you have more time to do what you love. And, you know, we're, we're taught that we need more, but, you know, it, it's hard to answer that question of how much is enough. Mm -hmm. um, it takes some time. You know, you might not know what makes you happy. I mean, this is one of my pet peeves as we live in a world that's like, you know, find your purpose. What's your why? What makes you happy? You know, a lot of people don't know, and that's okay you probably just need some time and space to figure it out. Uh, and the easiest way to do that is to have enough money. So you're not worried that your boss is going to fire you or, you know, have enough money so you can take some time off and, you know, explore. Yeah. And, you know, I think 
for me, clearly there's a number of how much money can last you for the rest of your life. And you can figure that out. That's all in the book. All those calculations are there. But the starting point is kind of looking at what you're spending currently and being like, you know, does this stuff make me happy? Mm-hmm. Do I love my life? Because really money only matters if it helps you live a life you love, point blank. And so using the money to build that life. And if you're like, if you're like, Hey, I need to spend $200,000 a year and do all these things. And this is what's going to make me happiest. Fine. That's up to you. Just realize that with money, there's always a trade-off. So if you, if you spend $200,000 a year, you're going to need at least $5 million to last for the rest of your life or have enough recurring income from real estate or a business. So, it, you know, you making, you know, 20 K plus a month after taxes from in recurring, you know, uh, consistent income or have $5 million or some mixture of the two in order for your money to last forever. But if you can live on, like I live on, you know, $50,000, you need not only significantly less money, but you can retire earlier. And so it's about, it's not about deprivation. It's, it's really about kind of optimization. And I've always viewed saving as an opportunity, not a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, here's the kind of life I want to live. And here's how much money I need. I've been very fortunate that now I have more than enough money. um, So I could spend more if I want to, but to be honest, like when I spend more money, it doesn't make me that much happier. And money actually, to me, the irony is the more money that I have, the less that I spend because just simply having the ability to buy something is enough. Mm. And sometimes I'm like, you know, screw it. I'm going to fly here and I'm going to buy the business, you know, uh, class ticket. You know, I went to Seattle recently and I was just like three days before I dropped money on a business class ticket. But hands down, that was, was like the most expensive thing that I bought the entire year. And I wanted to, you know, go visit a friend. And so that's why I did it. And so I have that opportunity, but that's just like, that's freedom. That's not like, you know, I'm not doing that all the time. I could, but I don't, you know, doing that all the time wouldn't be valuable to me. Um, but in this case I was really tired. I wanted to get out there. I wanted to rest on the way. So I bought a business class seat and paid a premium amount for it. And, you know, it was a lot more comfortable and more enjoyable. And, you know, just realize that everything in life, you know, it's a trade-off. And so I'm not going to tell you what to buy, what to spend, what to do. Just realize, you know, how much time of your life you're trading for it, both on the front side and on the back side, and how much longer you're going to have to work for it. And if you answer that question, is it worth it? If you say yes, then great, cool, do it. I'm not going to tell you to do one thing or the other. It's up to you. You know who you are, um, or at least you're on the path to figuring that out. And so, yeah, how much is enough is... uh, you know, very personal question. It's, it takes some time to figure out. Um, but going in, knowing that it might be less than you think and going in thinking about, you know, in an average week, what are those things that make me happiest and how, how much would it cost to maximize the opportunities to do those things as opposed to all this other crap, you know, you can, you know, you can choose to live life however you want just because all your friends are living a certain way or your parents told you to live a certain way. I realized pretty, pretty early on in my, you know, my own financial independence journey that, you know, I was going to have to live differently than most people, but most people are unhappy and have no money saved and don't like their jobs. Yeah. I mean, that's like what all the data shows us. Like 70% of Americans are disengaged at work. You know, 69% have like less than a thousand dollars saved. <laughs> you know, everyone like the status quo is pretty, pretty crappy. I mean, like the traditional narrative is pretty crappy. So I was like, I don't want that. Yeah. You know, I'm going to try to live life on my own terms and, you know, it's also a lot more fun because you get to figure it out along the way. And probably the coolest thing is like, once I was on this journey for a couple of years, I found other people who were doing it too. And so then there's a whole community of people kind of like you are trying to live a different way and, you know, trying to focus on increasing the meaning in their life and having a good time as opposed to just making more money. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. And I appreciate this perspective so much because uh, one, is, I think it, it you know forces us to be really intentional with how we're spending our money. And it's interesting you brought up uh, you know people not having you know more than $1,000 saved. Like I realized when I was working full-time, even though I was probably making more money salary-wise than I have in, in certain points, I never had as much saved in cash on hand as I do at the moment, which is is really bizarre to me. Like it, yeah. You know, and I think part of it is, you know, I'm forced to because I know at moments this is going to be inconsistent given the nature of, of what I've chosen to do. Uh, but you know, it's funny you brought up that that ticket because I remember my dad and I were talking. We we're you know about to board a flight in India, and Emirates sent us their free upgrade thing or not free upgrade. They're like, hey, you can upgrade to business class for a thousand dollars. And I told my dad, I was like, yeah, like if you give me a thousand dollars, I would buy a season pass for snowboarding, and I would get four months out of, of enjoyment out of that versus 12 hours of sitting in a fucking seat. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, um, thankfully it's really never been easier in history to make money, Mm. you know? So it's like all the conditions, especially in the United States are like so ripe to live a life that you want to live. It might not be easy. It probably won't be easy, but you're going to be a lot happier, yeah. you know? And the thing is we live in such an all or nothing world where it's like, you're taught to like dive all in and take all the risk and, you know, risk it all. But it's like life, like investing is about calculated risks. You know, you can make smart decisions. Like you can save up six months of expenses and then you're going to sleep better at night. And then if your boss fires you, you're not going to be as worried because you're going to have six months of expenses and then it's easier to find another job. You know, we live in a world that's like millions of dollars more, retire early, whatever it may be, financial independence. But like, those are fine. Those are admirable goals. Like my goal, my naive goal at 24 was save a million dollars. I mean, that's all I know. I was like, I want to be a millionaire. I want to save a million dollars. And that was a fine, that's a fine goal. But it's like, if that was my only goal, I never would have gotten there. Like your goal should be just to get to the next level. And in the book, I outlined seven levels of financial freedom. And it's like... Sure, you can get to level six, but just focus on getting from the level that you're at to the next level. 
You know, it's like if 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 you're worried about saving a million dollars and you're living paycheck to paycheck, forget the million dollars. Like just escape living paycheck to paycheck. Okay. If you have six months of expenses and you're worried about saving a million dollars, stop thinking about a million dollars. Save a year of expenses. You know, I had something called the double up strategy. And you know, this was kind of a mindset where Every $10,000 I saved or every amount of money I saved, my next goal was just to double the amount of money. So I remember I had $10,000 saved. I was like, now I need 20 and then I need 40, then I need 80. And that's how I pursued it as opposed to just being like, I need a million dollars because literally all the research shows that our minds can't even comprehend numbers that large. And so it's like, it's so daunting. And so we live in a world where the finance industry sells you a level of precision that's incredibly unrealistic. Like how at the age of 33 am I to know how much money I'm going to need for the rest of my life when who I am this year is different than who I was two years ago? How do I know who I'm going to be when I'm 60 years old? Sure, there are calculations you can use. And in the book, you know, I run through a number of different scenarios for how to calculate how much you need. But the more important question is, what is your relationship with money? And do you have the ability to be mindful about you know, how you use money and it's your relationship to it. And then revisit once a year, okay, is money helping me live a life I love? And if not, what do I need to tweak? What do I need to change? But, you know, man, it's like, thankfully, it's so, whether it's making money online or offline, it's so easy to connect with others. There are just so many great opportunities and frameworks. And then there's so many examples of other people who are doing it. You know, it's like, you're, you're not on this path alone. And dude, like, I think a lot of people are like two or three steps away from a life they'd really love. You know, I talk to these people and they just like hate their jobs, hate what they're doing. And they're like, but I can't quit. I can't do something else. And I'm like, yo, just focus on like the two or three things that you can change in your job that are going to have the biggest impact. You know, it's like, or make these two or three pivots. It's not, you don't have to be all or nothing. Um, You know, it's, 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 man, it's like so many people are so close. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, you know, because I at least here, here's kind of what worked for me and the other 10 people in the book who reached financial independence before 35. You know, we chose to live a different way and make some different choices. And, you know, the thing is, you don't have to be crazy like me and do it in five years. But, you know, the principles still hold. Like, even if you retire you know, at the age of 45 or have enough money at the age of 45, as opposed to 65, like you've crushed it. You've won the game, you know, Mm -hmm. or even forget that. Even if you just have a job that you love that pays for a life that you really love, you've won the game. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, like, congratulate, like you've won the game. You know, so many people, man, I talk to these people and they're like so stressed out, but they've got like spouses they love and kids they love and great friends and they like where they live. And, you know, like the only thing really holding them back is that they need a little bit more money saved. But I'm like, yo, you've won the game. Like, this is life. Like you've already won. Like, what what are you running? What are you chasing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is uh, it's such an interesting perspective. So I, you know, I have to ask you uh, when you hear about people like the Dave Ramsey's of the Susie Orman's of the world, and they're sort of, you know, uh, just deny yourself any pleasure mindset, which is, is kind of the sense I get from, you know, hearing people, you know, telling Dave Ramsey, Dave Ramsey apparently tells people not to go out to a single meal. And it's like, it's just deprivation, it seems like. And it, I think the thing that in my mind that doesn't take into consideration is, is time. Absolutely. Um, so one of the reasons I hate budgets and in the book, I have something called the only budget you'll ever need, which is effectively not a budget at all. I've never had a budget is, you know, Dave Ramsey and, you know, I'm not going to hate on Dave because Dave's like helped so many people. He's a pioneer. Um, you know, they've helped people, even though their methods are kind of, kind of screwy sometimes. I mean, it's not lost on me that, that they're of a different generation, you know, my parents are still working. Most of my friends' parents are still working. Most baby boomers don't have enough money and they were following the advice of those people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like those were their financial gurus yeah. and nothing panned out. Like saving five to 10% of your income is not enough. It's just not, you're never going to retire. Yeah. That's like, that's like a blatant truth. That's just like never going to happen. And so for me, when you look at what they're doing, um, what I see what's wrong is that they, they focus on a few things. First, they focus on budgeting, budget, 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 budget. But what budgeting 
does is it reinforces a scarcity mindset. And so you're forced to look at the things you're spending and try to cut back. But often they recommend that you cut back on those small purchases, whether it's your daily latte or your glass of wine or your beers with your friends or your concert tickets or your Netflix subscription, cut out all your subscriptions. But it's often those things that give us the most joy. Mm -hmm. It's those small purchases that are the joys in life. So they're telling you to cut those out. So you cut them out and then you're miserable and then you're like, this sucks. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? And then you abandon it and then you go back in debt. You know, whereas like my perspective is like, no, buy those things, like spend that money, like, you know, segment out 30% of your income every month just to blow on whatever you want. Don't feel guilty about it. Mm-hmm. Where you, you know, the average American say, um, spends 70% of their income on three things, housing, transportation, and food. Mm-hmm. That's it. 70% of their money. So you're not going to get the big savings on those little purchases. You're going to get the big savings by, you know, moving to a smaller apartment, getting a roommate, moving to a different neighborhood, house hacking. You know, you can Google that and research what that is or, you know, buy the book and I write all about house hacking. You know, it's like, it's never been easier to literally live for free. You know, I, in the whole, in the book, I have this whole section about like how to live rent free. There's so many different ways from house sitting to house hacking to, um, you know, barter. I mean, there's so many different ways. And the one thing is like nothing in life has to be forever. Like, yes, it might suck having a roommate for a while or, you know, renting out a room from a couple, but you're going to be able to bank that difference. Like I used to live in a $1,500 a month apartment. And then I moved to an $800 a month apartment when I started my financial independence journey. And yes, it was really crappy. And yes, my wife then girlfriend didn't come visit and she complained about it. But I was able to bank $700 a month, which is $8,400 per year. I did that for three years and I invested that money. Now that's worth over $200,000 in my investment portfolio. Mm -hmm. The net impact of just that one apartment move is probably going to be half a million dollars over the next 20 years. And that's just for half a million dollars. That's just for like moving to a smaller, slightly crappier apartment. And it wasn't forever. I lived there three years. Then I bought a place that I really loved. And so focus on those big expenses, cut down your housing expense, your transportation expense, buy a used car, buying a new car, unless it brings you just like a ton of joy. Mm -hmm. And you realize the trade-off that you're making is probably one of the dumbest decisions that most Americans make. Um, And then the other thing is food. You know, it's just Food is one of those things where it's just so easy, so convenient, you know, to order, uh, you know, delivery food um, or pre-cut food. You know, that's an area that's actually really easy to cut back and be mindful about. But, you know, you can't, you know, say, I can't save any money, you know, but you're living in a $3,000 a month apartment. Like that just just does not add up to me in a lot of ways. And I think you know, those old school personal finance gurus, it's like, save five to 10% of your income and just keep at it. And I realized that like, saving early and often was important. You know, that's what they say. But saving early and often as and as much as you can, that's the X factor. Because I realized that if I could, you know, instead of saving 5%, I could save 50% of my income. Um, which, you know, you're thinking 50% of your income, where are you going to save that from? It's by reducing your housing and your transportation expense. If you go from 5% to 50%, you've cut like 25 years off the amount of time it'll take to retire. Mm. And that's up to you. Like, okay, cool. You don't want to do that? Fine. Enjoy working for the rest of your life. And if you love your job and makes you happy, great. You know, that, that might be awesome and that might be fine. Um, you know, I never had a job that I like really, really loved. And so for me, it was just like, how can I get the freedom to do what I want as opposed to just the, you know, something I need to do to make money to live. Yeah. And so it's all trade-offs. Once again, it goes back to that. And I think a lot of the personal finance advice out there, it's just so basic, uh, or so simple, you know, that it, that it no longer works. Mm -hmm. Um, or at least it, it sells a false dream. Yeah. Well, I think there's so many numerous perspectives here that are interesting because they challenge so many conventional narratives. One is that, you know, joy is sort of the thing that, you know, should be the thing that determines your purchases. Like I have a nice car then it's the first nice car I've ever had. And I've never had a nice car my whole life. And believe it or not, even a year after I got it, 
I'm like, wow, this is actually bringing me a great deal of joy. I enjoy driving this car. Like it, I actually, you know, like I, I, I look forward to my commute home to visit my parents and all that. Um, so it was kind of like, yeah, this is, this is important enough that it matters is one of the things that I chose to do because it, like you said, it brought joy to my life. Uh, but I think that one of the other, other questions I, I, I wonder, you know, from your perspective, we're moving, uh, into a world, I think that is very, very, very uncertain, uh, for all of us. Uh, and you know, it's interesting. Douglas Rushkoff had an article on Medium where uh, he talked about the fact that he went and gave a talk to a bunch of billionaires. And the biggest question they had for him was, "What's going to happen when our money is worthless?" Like they're building bunkers to protect themselves. Uh, you know, I had a presidential candidate here, uh, Andrew Yang, who talked about the fact that we are moving towards automation at a rate we've never seen before, and our political leaders are living in a fantasy because they don't think this is coming. And I wonder, you know, you as somebody who writes about this subject, when you see all of this happening and all these sort of economic dynamics at play, what do you think about all of that? That's a really great question. Um, the first would be if money ends up being worthless, I think we'll all have bigger problems. Um, I don't have an answer for how to isolate against that. I mean, I think there's sort of, I think first off, there's way too many people in the world. I think our planet can't sustain at its current rate, clearly the number of people that are in the world. Um, you know, I know that the U S from a resource perspective, if everyone consumed as many resources as the U S we'd need three planets in order to sustain ourselves. So it's clear that, you know, even from an environmental standpoint, no matter what your politics are, we're, we're sliding down a slippery slope. I'm probably more worried about that mm -hmm. and the impact that that will have on everything. Um, you know, it's, it's, I don't think there's an answer. I think clearly there's benefit to having enough money and not being reliant on a job <laughs> to um, weather at least some of that storm. You know what I mean? Um, until money is worthless, I feel like money will provide insulation and at least some level of freedom with which to exist in a changing time. Yeah. I also believe that skills are future currency. So I think that the diversity of skill sets and being able to um, do a bunch of different things um, will be beneficial. Um, I also think the paradox of automation is that the value of human story and human connection is actually increasing. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, in the digital world we live in, selling, being able to tell stories. I mean, so much of life is storytelling. Um, being able to connect on a human level is becoming an increasingly valuable skill set that can be cultivated and learned um, and should be taught to kids. Um, and, you know, I think there's two sides of this coin. There's kind of the structural realities and then there's the spiritual ones. And I'm not saying like spiritual and like the religious dogmatic sense. I'm saying in the like, okay, if the world is going to go, you know, down the toilet in the next 80 years, how are we preparing our minds and our hearts for that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, the Buddhist will be fine. But it's like, you know, it's like uh, there's an acceptance and an understanding and a love. And I also, I mean, there's clearly from my perspective, man, like, so I clearly wrote a book about money. Um, I've never been a banker. I don't want to be a banker. I'm not in the finance, you know, I'm in the finance world, but not in the finance world. You know, there's so much greed. There's so much negativity. There's so much, you know, I feel very thankful. I've never worked with a financial advisor. I did it you know, all of my own and reading blogs and books. And, you know, that's why I wrote this book. Cause even if you want to work with someone, you know, money is literally one of the most important things in your life. And it's like, so many people just try to outsource it. And it's like, why would you outsource this thing that literally has the potential to build an amazing, like help you build an amazing life? Why would you give the management of that over to someone else? And so getting comfortable with your money and yourself, um, you know, all of those things are, um, incredibly valuable, no matter where the world's headed. Um, I do think more from a climate perspective, we're entering into challenging times. Um, and then the world will respond in kind. I don't know what the world can do with 10 billion people. Mm. Um, clearly our system is broken. And so from a political, social, uh, emotional, spiritual, you know, I, I think, you know, we're, we're, there's a real crisis of meaning 
um, there's too much greed. There's too much, uh, you know, I've got mine and I'm not going to help you, you know? So I think, you know, there's some, someone said this, I don't know who said this, but it was like, you know, imagine like, we're all so competitive. We're also, you know, capitalism, obviously driven by competition, innovation. It's all driven by competition, which is great. Like I'm a firm believer in all those things. Like, um, but imagine like what would happen if like, you know, I don't know if you saw, like, I don't believe in aliens. I don't know if you saw yesterday, I was just reading like on the guardian. It's like they, for the, for the first time in like the last 15 years, there was like a series of repeating. It was like on all the news stations today, a series of repeating patterns that radio patterns that satellites just picked up. And like a bunch of Harvard astrophysicists are saying that it's like extraterrestrial life. And Stephen Hawking, one of the last things he said before he died, he was like, I think there's extraterrestrial life and don't mess with those. Like, I don't know. I don't believe in that. You know, like I don't have a stance. I don't have enough information to form an opinion on that. But what I can say is if like, tomorrow we all woke up and like realized that the aliens were coming after us. That might be a really good thing for our planet because we would all bind together. Mm. You know, we'd realize like it's humans against them. Like we'd realize we are one because as long as we compete with each other and out compete and out greed, you know, we're going to destroy ourselves. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Just like, wow, if the aliens showed up, we would clearly band together as humans, as one. And that's what we're not doing. I mean, the world needs to come together and be like, we have one planet. This is our home. We need to persevere. And then on the flip side, you know, humans are obviously we've, we've lasted for so many years and we're here, we're incredibly resilient. And so maybe 90% of the planet will die off, but I'm sure humans will find a way to persevere. Wow. Um, so given that you have read my book, I'm really interested to see how you're going to answer this question. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? So I'm a huge believer. Um, you know, I thought a lot about like, what does it mean to be the best? Um, and, you know, being, you know, what you talk about kind of like being the best or being the only, um, you know, I'm a, uh, gosh, this is such a great question. I really believe that there's all you can really do is leave it all on the floor. And what I mean by that is I think trying to clearly be the best is, is futile. I mean, it's like, you're, you're just going to exhaust yourself. If the, you know, the bar just like more and more and more like the world we live in, you know, you're always raising the bar. Like once you're the best, there's always going to be someone who's better than you. You know, you can't, it's just like, you know, it's always going to be fleeting. There's always going to be someone who's going to kind of usurp you. And so, you know, I agree that like best isn't kind of the goal. What you can only do is like, is leave it all on the floor. And what I mean by that is, you know, even when I was writing this book, you know, I don't know how well the book is going to do. I hope it reaches a ton of people, you know, um, you know, I'm not writing it to sell any product or anything. I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to chronicle this period of my life and share the things that helped me get more freedom and other people get more freedom to try to help others, you know, um, not be stressed about money and have more time for the things they love and, you know, all these things. And that, that's my intent, uh, and my de desire and my dream. And I thought a lot about this because, you know, it took me about 3000 hours to write the book and I didn't have a whole lot of time. I and mean, this is all compressed in like 10 months. And I wanted to, you know, look back and I thought about like, okay, when you're like 75 years old and you're looking back on this opportunity, what's going to be important to you? And the answer that I came to was, I, no matter what happens, I want to look back and remember that I left it all on the floor, that I put everything that I have into it. And everything that I have means not just hard work, not just hustle, soul and depth and questioning. And, you know, like we're all human. Like, how, like I, I just want to like lay it all out there. I want to be exhausted at the end. I want to have nothing left. I want to be a completely empty glass. And so that's what I did. I, you know, I've 
read over 400 books about money and entrepreneurship and investing. And so I knew a ton about the topic. I lived it, you know, and I was like, most books are just one idea and then a bunch of fluff. And I was like, I want this to be my goal, the highest ROI money book ever. I want it to be nonstop. Here's how to do this. Here's the, you know, I, and that was the intention. And so for me, the goal is not to be the best money book or the best money writer. It's to live up to my own potential. You know, it's like to, to have nothing left. You know, it's like you're running a race and you like you see those marathoners and they can't even take one more step. They literally fall on the finish line like that is living to me. You know, I might not be the fastest. I might not be the smartest. I might not be, you know, have, you know, work more. But like I'm I'm going to like I'm going to collapse on the finish line. And that's that's what I tried to do. And I think that. In life, if you do that um, and you're honest with yourself about that, um, and that doesn't mean you have to burn out, it simply means that you give it everything that you have. That, you know, there's a lot of smart people, there's a lot of, you know, great ideas. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean anything unless you, you know, you go out on the edge and you try to leave it all on the floor. And I think that's how you become the only. You know, I think that's because there's no, like, no one could have written the book that I just wrote because it's all of me. And that's what I'm worried about. You know, people read it and they're going to literally know everything about me from every dollar I invested to every thought I had to every breakdown like that. You can't replicate me. You can try, you know, it's like a, the blue ocean strategy of your life. But, um, so amazing. Um, well, I think that makes you really thoughtful, uh, and, uh, insightful end to a very, very eye-opening conversation. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to? Yeah. So, uh, financialfreedombook.com, um, available worldwide. You, you know, check out your local bookstore, support your local bookstore. It's also on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, at millennial money on Twitter, millennialmoney.com is my blog is my website. Um, grantsabatier.com is where I write about other topics than money. Um, can follow the book around on Instagram. It has its own account, uh, at financial freedom and yeah, hit me up. Uh, let me know what you think about this podcast. I'd love to connect with you. Look forward to hearing your thoughts on the book. Um, if you're stressed about money, check it out. If you have a friend who's stressed, check it out. Um, and yeah, man, once again, money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. That's the, you can always go out and make more money, but you can never get back this moment. So this is just a, this is just a, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's just such an honor to be on your show. I'm a huge fan and uh, love everything that you're doing, man. Thank you. Uh, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.